You know what the most dangerous thing in America is, right? Nigga with a library card. <laughs> This is the Most Dangerous Thing in America podcast, a show in which we read books by black authors, and they're talked about by a black author, and you can listen if you are black or not black, that is okay. This week on the podcast, we are finishing up Professor Alois Mlambo's excellent, concise, informative history of Zimbabwe. Uh... We're going from 1980 to 2008, two chapters, a small conclusion, and we're going to talk about just my overall thoughts on the book. Already have done, I honestly don't know, I think it's two episodes about this book, it may be three. It's a history book, so it's dense. Uh, Well, no, excuse me, it's not dense, it's just, it's a history book, so there's a lot of information. But I wouldn't say it's necessarily dense, even though it is concise. Why am I quibbling? It's a bit dense, but I don't mean that in the negative way, so that's why I'm quibbling. Uh, A very good book, not hard to get through, and very informative about a fascinating time period. You know, it goes all the way back into ancient Zimbabwe, doesn't spend a lot of time there, and then we get the last 100 plus years of Zimbabwean history. Uh, I should correct myself by saying that when it was ancient Zimbabwe, Obviously, that, you know, was talking about a region and and everything like that. So uh, there's a lot more complications than just saying it was talking about ancient Zimbabwe. We should say the region that is now known as Zimbabwe. He goes back and talks about part of that. But so it's been great. And this was the part I really wanted to get to. The whole premise for me reading this book was I was doing a data science project. And I came across the the rise and fall of the Zimbabwean life expectancy and I wanted context for that problem. And so I, I was looking up different things on the web. And then this book uh, popped out and it was written by a black Zimbabwean. And that was important to me. I wanted to get the perspective of a an indigenous person from the country. There's other people who are writing about the country, but they're not necessarily black. They might be from Zimbabwe in some way, shape or form, but they're not a black African person, a black Zimbabwean. So that was important to me. And um, I wanted to do that when I read about Tanzania a year or two ago and couldn't really find the right book for that. I I was in a time crunch at that point. But this was good for that purpose, and I've really enjoyed it. So to answer the question about life expectancy, I still have a lot of work to do. I still want to research and find out more But this definitely answered some of the questions, and we're going to see that in these, you know, 2.5 chapters, because really the the final quote-unquote chapter is just a a coda to the book. So, um, but yeah, a a lot of what I was looking for comes to light in the last two chapters. So, okay, let's talk about the first chapter. This is going to be the big chunk of the podcast, so we'll spend most of our time talking about this, this first chapter, which is actually the eighth chapter in the book, it is called Independent Zimbabwe, 1980 to 2000. So basically, there was colonized Zimbabwe, then then Zimbabwe declared its independence with a white-led government in the 60s, and then that led to a clash between black Zimbabweans and, uh, I guess what you would still call colonizers, but like colonizers who were themselves, at least in some way, nominally from Zimbabwe. 
And then that lasted until 1979 when there was the Lancaster House Agreement. And then there were elections. And then ZANU won the election. That was one of the political parties. And they, their candidate was uh, Robert Mugabe, who I think we're all familiar with. And now he's running the country. So uh, Professor Nlambo covers this 20-year period by splitting it into several subsections. And so I'm just going to kind of give a, give a, a quick brief overview of these sections without going into them. So basically, in two sentences, the 1980s were a time of growth. So in general, 1980 to 1990, and uh, the 1990s were the decline. And, and so he gets into the reasons for the growth and the reasons for the decline. And then the second sentence of that would be, although the 1980s were the time of growth, there was a massacre in 1987 that it resulted in 20,000 deaths. So it wasn't all, uh, I don't even want to use a trite phrase. It wasn't all good. I was going to say something trite, but we're not going to do that here. So um, yeah, all right. So I'm just going to go to the sections here and talk about the different things that I found interesting. Uh, you know, this podcast is not a history podcast, right? It's me reading books by black authors and talking about them. So I'm not trying to tell you the whole history. If you want the whole history, it's a 240 page book. Professor Lombo has written a nice, great, concise history. Read it. Um, instead, I'm just going to tell you the things I found interesting. So one of the subsections is called politics. And the most interesting thing to me here was the white flight that happened. I figured that this happened. That was one of the reasons I thought life expectancy possibly dropped. Uh, earlier in the book, Professor Mlambo lays out the stats about how much more money uh, the white population had for healthcare compared to the black population. He also lays it out in this chapter too in terms of education. I believe it was each white child got 20 times the funding as black children before the 1980 government took power, for ZANU took power. So... Um, I thought perhaps if a bunch of people leave the country who have, you know, a high life expectancy, uh, by them leaving, it might drag the average back towards the middle, you know, that they were skewing the data and now they're leaving they're you know, unskewing the data. But so it did happen. White flight did happen, but, uh, it's connection to life expectancy is not made in the book, but uh, that doesn't mean it didn't happen or excuse me. It doesn't mean that it didn't affect that number anyway. Uh, 80,000 white people left in the first year, in the first year. So there were only 250,000 in the country. So 170,000 remained. And the other thing that was interesting there was just like, we see white flight happen in Zimbabwe. We certainly saw it happen in uh, many different American cities. So just kind of a a thing that happens. And, and, and one of the things about white flight is, you know, what ends up happening is that like um, you have a, city or a province or a state or a country now ran by the black government, the white people who left took all of the infrastructure with them or took a lot of the good businesses with them. And then you have the black people or the African people or the Zimbabwean people sitting there without the capital to get started. And so then it looks like, oh, well, they've done a poor job or they've managed, uh, they've managed the resources incorrectly when really They've never had a chance. If the city would have kept operating the way, or if the country, or if the state had it kept operating the way it was in the first place, just accepted black rule, uh, then there wouldn't have been any problems. Obviously, it doesn't. You know, you don't just suddenly, the country doesn't suddenly run worse because black people are in charge, uh, which is something we'll get to in just a moment. So anyway, white flight happened, and um, yeah, just an interesting phenomenon that. Uh, Oftentimes when there's black leadership, white people run out of there. 
Although they didn't do it when Obama came to power. Instead, they just created a tea party and lost their minds. Okay. The next thing that's interesting got its own header was that 1987 uh, massacre. I'm going to go ahead and give it a shot here. Gokura Hundi. Uh, This was a, what ended up turning into like a, something like a war. He called it a fratricidal um, genocide. So, you know, war amongst brothers or a, a conflict amongst brothers. But really, it's based out of old factions. So the Zanu who were largely the Shona people, Shona-speaking people, and the Zapu, who were largely Ndebele people, um, they had beef going back, you know, to right after the UDI started. I can't remember which party started first, but one party started first, and then the other party split off from them, and they were at odds with each other, and were always kind of fighting, even when they were opposing the majority white government, or excuse me, the minority white government, they were still fighting each other. So, you know, obviously Zanu comes to power and they go, uh, oh, well, now we can go into Matebeland, uh, that region, and just slaughter people. And they did it using old wounds to justify these killings. They claimed that, they claimed that uh, there had been uh, massacres in the past and now they were righting those wrongs and things like that, but... Professor Mlambo makes it pretty clear that that wasn't the case. Now, I didn't check any secondary sources, but I've, you know, my gut is that he's telling the truth and, and, uh, it's not, uh, is not embellishing here. So, you know, uh, 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 specifically about the fact that the, that there were, uh, old wrongs. He, he claims that that, that is a, a made up, uh, a made up claim. Now, I don't, uh, as far as 20,000 people dying, I, I have no doubt about that. I'm sure that that's the case. That That's definitely not questionable. But whether or not this was like some sort of retaliation, it seems to be that what the Mugabe government did, what the ZANU government did, was they used it as an excuse to commit atrocity, which is going to be a recurring theme throughout this chapter. So the other interesting part about this was that South Africa helped, uh, didn't help, but... Um, encouraged this because they wanted to destabilize the region because it helped and this is the most interesting professor Mlambo pointed out to me it helped people see that if black people are in charge the country just went to went to hell so that way they could like you know point to that and be like see apartheid it's good um so that plays back to the thing i was just talking about with white flight it's just like you know you have all of these so you, so you snatch the infrastructure out and then you have all of these other invisible hands trying to guide your country. So obviously South Africa is one and they're a country that really has a lot of influence on Zimbabwe. But then you have all the Cold War countries too because um, I believe he talks about these fighters who, I wouldn't even call them fighters, these murderers who participated in this massacre were Korean trained. And then also... Earlier, before independence, ZANU was trained by China, and ZAPU was trained by Russia. So that's like a Cold War tension inside of itself. Because, I mean, obviously the real Cold War is Russia and the U.S., or just communism versus the West. But then China and Russia are ostensibly on the same team, and uh, somehow they're split versus ZANU and ZAPU. So really a lot of invisible hands, you know. 
And that comes up throughout the book, the different countries that tried to influence and like, you know, sanction, uh, sanctions are obviously one thing, but also just providing weapons, providing training, uh, doing kinds of trades to get around sanctions. And then, um, you know, always wanting to get a, a piece of the pie, these different foreign powers, it makes it very hard to uh, become a legitimate country when you wrestle independence through a protracted guerrilla war and then while you're trying to like stand on two legs you have the rug pulled from under you that being infrastructure and then on top of that you have all these other people trying to push you one way or another while you're just trying to stand up and then on top of that we should also mention and professor Mlambo does a much better job than i'm doing right now uh, you have the leaders of the country, the people who came to power, screwing over everybody else in the country. So they're not blameless either. There's a big old blame pie. And Professor Lombo, um, he doles it out to everybody. Which brings us to our next section, which is war veterans. Basically, the country had way too many war, uh, war veterans because of the war that went on for like 15 years. And these are pissed off. Some of them, you know, disabled. Some of them... Uh, just angry or damaged by the war, post-traumatic stress disorder, what have you. And a lot of them, you know, young men without a lot of skills or women uh, who would also just be disrespected for having fought in the war and looked at as like unmarriageable, un uh, couldn't, you know, couldn't be married. So um, the government decided to give them a stipend, which wasn't enough money. It's like 185 Zimbabwe dollars a month for 24 months. And then... That didn't really work and create a lot of unrest. And then that just became like a stopgap measure that just kept getting repeated over and over again. So like later on, a few years later, they ended up giving out more money. And then later on, a couple of years later, they ended up getting into the Congolese, uh, the the last Congo conflict. So just, just so they have something to do really. So um, that was a big problem. And so while all of this is happening, what... Professor Mlambo is pointing out here, remember, this is the boom period, this is the 80s, but he's pointing all of this out because this is going to lead to the bust. But how much is the boom happening? Well, the country, the education goal was to get everybody educated by um, 2000. It was like education by 2000. And they had like 80% of the people educated so they were doing you know really well with that and that was solid and then the life expectancy thing was also improving a ton so by 1990 the country boasted the lowest child malnutrition rate in africa and a child mortality rate that was way below the continent's average at 88 per 1000 so that was great as well so education's going better because they're investing in education in black children now and the healthcare situation is improving and all of this because the economy is improving between 85 and 91 the real gdp uh, real gdp growth was 5.3 percent um over those six years but then we start to see cracks in the system so already we talked about uh the massacre in 87 the war veterans who are kind of disgruntled. And the bigger problem is just that all of this growth was based on assets and, uh, excuse me, based on income and not assets. 
and it wasn't real growth. It was more redistribution. So they're taking money that wasn't spent on any black children before and spending it on black children, you know, for healthcare and for education. And that's good, but that's not sustainable. And then you have all these educated kids and what happens? Well, here, Professor Lombo writes, uh, there was... Uh, there were 100,000 school graduates in the late 1980s that came onto the market, and the companies were producing only 10,000 new jobs a year. So 100,000 school graduates, but only 10,000 new jobs a year. So naturally what happens is inflation, um, GDP growth stalls out, they stop you know, being able to make money, and... Mugabe decides to take on an ESAP reform. And this is a IMF World Bank idea. And so there are all these austerity measures to get inflation down. And it caps annual spending. And it caps what you can do. And essentially what happened was, after that ESAP reform, everything goes to shit. Now... Professor Mlambo does not just blame the World Bank and, and IMF. He makes it clear that, you know, because that didn't come up until halfway through the book, or excuse me, halfway through this chapter. So he makes it clear that the, the handling of the war veterans was a major issue. The actual way that they, you know, although they had good intentions with education and healthcare, the fact that they didn't invest in growth and only redistribution was a problem. Uh, the fact that they didn't actually address the issues of poor people, that most of these measures that they did improve, um, it only improved the lives of like the middle class and, and the status quo, more or less. So he's not blaming just the World Bank and I, IMF, but he is saying that when that happened, it was bad. So all these austerity measures go into place and basically everything just goes to hell. And so uh, on top of all of that, the land issue you know, it's been an issue this entire time, but it was basically ignored because that was really something that mattered a lot to the poorest of people in the country. And so it could be ignored. But it was always still talked about. It just, there wasn't, you know, really, the ball couldn't get rolling on it. And so part of the issue was that at the Lancaster House Agreement, they uh, they had made it so that you could only get a certain amount of uh, you could only get land from white people if they agreed to sell it. You couldn't you couldn't seize land, and then you had to pay them in foreign currency. So that's a problem. And so you have uh, you've got the situation where Zimbabwe had they just did all these austerity measures, so they they don't have any money to be buying land back anyway. The land that they had bought back in the first place was all land that white people were willing to give up. So you know you can guess it's not good land. And then the third thing was, at the Lancaster House Agreement thing, Britain had said, like, oh, yeah, like, we'll give you some money to buy back land, no problem. And then they just reneged on that completely. And then so there was a letter that Claire Short, who is the British Secretary of State for the new Labour government, she sent to Mugabe. Uh, well, I don't know if she addressed it right. I don't know if it said, like, hey, Mr. Mugabe. But, um, you know, he got the letter and... Uh, apparently he kept it like he really didn't like it so he would bring it up all the time but so she wrote i should make it clear that we do not accept that britain has a special responsibility to meet the costs of land purchased in zimbabwe we are a new government from diverse backgrounds without links to former colonial interests my own origins are irish and as you know we were colonized not colonizers 
an amazing paragraph. Um, so yeah, I, I wonder if that would have worked for Obama. Like he shows up and he's like, Hey, listen, I know that in the past America really did a number on the middle East, but I'm black. And, um, as you know, the black people were colonized, not colonizers. So although I'm American, it'll be cool. Right. Cause like, you know, you, you we get it. We get each other. Anyway, I'm going to go ahead and screw your country over now. All right. That probably wouldn't have worked. Okay. Anyway. So this is, um, that's the backdrop, right? So you have 1980, things are getting better. The economy is getting better. Things are improving, but it's kind of artificial. They're not helping the poorest of the poor. They're not actually investing in growth. They're just investing in redistribution. There's disgruntled war veterans. There is a massacre in 1987, which is closer to 90 than the 80s. Okay. Then there's the ESAP reforms that kick in in the 90s to try to like tamp down inflation and then you have that land issue that's always there that's always been there that's always going to be there and that's how we go you know we kind of like traverse a rocky 20-year period okay so then chapter 9 is labeled the crisis years 2000 to 2008 so after all of those good bad things happening from 1980 to 2000 what happens in 2000 2008 is Mugabe's like all right this is bad like this is real bad, and um, we have like an opposition party now, the MDC, and people seem to like them. We need to seize on an opportunity. In the same way that they seized on a, a story to slaughter people from Zapu, you know, the NAA people, uh, he was like, all right, we got to seize on a story. So I think it was in 1997, some peasants randomly invaded a farm and like took it over, tried to take it over. And so Zanu was like, Awesome. We got to do this. We need the land back. And um, suddenly this issue, which they had more or less ignored, they had more or less ignored, you know, poor people being like, hey, we need our land back or we want land or like, hey, we fought in the war because of land. They had been more or less ignored, at least, you know, in, in any way that would have mattered. And um, it only, it only, you know, this is Professor Lombo's interpretation. It only really came to the forefront when it was like, damn, the MDC is really getting popular and we need to be able to point to something and like galvanize our position. So when that happened, they were like, hey, we're going to seize this land back and we're going to redistribute it. And anybody who's against that is uh, an enemy of the state. And also those are the people who are funding the opposition party MDC anyway. That's who, that's who, those, pe- that's who those people are. They're not for us. They're not like us. That's those people. So that's how that all came about. So all of that's really interesting. And um, that basically tells the story of how we got from A to B, right? That's how we get from Mugabe and obviously the whole country fighting for independence and how they eventually get to land redistribution. You know, and I hope, and obviously I'm not a historian, but I hope it did a good job of laying out all the different factors, you know, the foreign influences, the infrastructure problems, the leadership problems within the country, because that's still, there's still people who are in charge who are a big problem. Professor Lombo points out that, you know, one of the fascinating things is how many times people who came to power in Africa just resembled exactly the colonizers who had left, which when you think about it actually does make sense because they see how it was ran before and just go like, oh, right, well, this is the way things are ran. Like, the, the smoothest way for this thing to run is this way. Uh, 
you know, it's funny. They criticize like one party governments in Africa, but then it's like, what was the party when we were colonized, right? It was one party. So there was no like, hey, should we vote about this? There wasn't, you know, maybe there was a party for the colonizer back home, but not not on African soil. But so anyway, um, that more or less ends the timeline, right? And now I just want to kind of talk about the thing that was why I read the book. And that is where in this chapter, Professor Mlambo does like an accounting and he actually tells us how bad was it? And first he describes it in economic terms, so like you can get an idea, and then he does it in health terms, and that's the one I really care about. But just so in economic terms, um, the United Nations Economic Commission for Africa said, this is the worst economic crisis of its history, with the economy confronting a complicated combination of domestic and external debt, crippling foreign exchange shortages, poor weather conditions, should have thrown that in too, there was droughts and stuff, negative real interest rates and escalating inflation. Uh, It was estimated in 2002 that 200,000 jobs had been lost in two years. Investment had shrunk by 80% in five months and 60% of the country's 12.5 million people were living below the poverty line. And there's all kinds of stuff in here where uh, Professor Mlambo talks about the informal economy, which was booming and um, tons of that stuff. So there's all kinds of numbers in here and statistics about that. But I just want to get to the whole reason I read this book, which was the health thing and the stats from this. And um, here we go. Okay, I'm just going to read this section verbatim. It's kind of long, but bear with me. Evidence of the disastrous impact of the economic meltdown on the country's public health sector is overwhelming. For instance, life expectancy declined from 62 to 44 between 90 and 2008. Now that is amazing. I mean, that's amazing. 62 to 44 in an 18-year period. And I'm not going to read all of the section where he talks about the different... um, I guess, you know, I guess you'd have to say epidemics or pandemics that broke out. I mean, it, it's weird because it's just one country, but the AIDS, well, the AIDS one is not. Um, and then there was also a cholera outbreak as well. So uh, those two things obviously would, you know, um, contribute to that. But like still, it's, I mean, that's, it's, that's a massive drop. So, okay, we continue. Um, while maternal mor- uh, mortality increased from 168 per 100,000 live births in 1990 to 880 per 100,000 live births in 2005, that is, what, four times as much? Uh, th- three, uh, five times as much? Yeah, about five times as many um, women dying in childbirth. And then, where are we at? Infant and under five mortality rate rose from 53 and 77 to 60 and 80 and... 14 years and then uh there's a little i'm not gonna yeah so that's nuts so just yeah there's more numbers i I lied i said i was going to read the whole section verbatim but then i kept interrupting myself but so the main thing there is that life expectancy drop you know that's the that's the whole reason i was reading this uh this section you know so so that really caught my eye and that's what I want to research. I want to research that drop because it just seems so big and so sudden. And I just want to know how that's possible. Because here's the other thing. So it gets down to 
44 in 2008, and then it's up to, by 2015, it's back up to 60. So that that's the part that I still don't really get. Like, <laughs> I get how it drops down. That That's no problem. So 62 to 44, I mean, that's still, I still would like to look at that from 62 to 44, but to get back from 44 to 62, um, and then to get up to 62 in the first place. So it's really, it's really vacillating up and down a lot. So I'd really like to just look at that and, um, maybe look at some other African countries too, with similar profiles, which I, which I did when I did the original data science project, but yeah, I'm just not sure, but uh, that did at least give me some context for why it happened, why the initial drop happened. Like, so that makes sense. Okay, I still want to know if there's anything about the demographics changing that contributed to that, and then I want to know how they recovered, uh, because okay, he lists the crisis years from 2000 to 2008, but I don't think the country was necessarily booming from 2008 onwards. I think it improved, but I don't know if it was booming. So anyway, still a lot of you know research to do there. Uh, okay. Last thing from this chapter was uh, one more little nugget about the healthcare. It says the proportion, the proportion of people with access to safe drinking water had been declining since early 2000. And the situation was expected to worsen further during 2008 due to the current economic challenges and the crumbling infrastructure. And I couldn't help but think about America where obviously Flint, Michigan, where Little Miss Flint's been running her water campaigns. And if you have some extra money to throw to Flint, Michigan, do that. But also Jackson, Mississippi, I saw on Twitter this week, is the water is uh, looks awful. And then I saw a Nebraska farmer who tried to serve some water to his local councilman. Uh, and I think his farm is near a fracking site. And the water is obviously just, you know, dirt water. So, or you, you would hope it was just dirt. Who knows what's in that stuff? Uh, probably just dirt, but you know, that's not good. So it just made me think of America's crumbling infrastructure and, uh, you know, with, as with a lot of things in America, it's just ridiculous given the amount of money the country has. So anyway, uh, it's a parallel that shouldn't exist given the amount of, I mean, it should never exist in any country, but a country that has the money that, uh, America has it definitely shouldn't be the case, but okay. The conclusion of the book is like adapted from professor Mlambo's lecture called becoming Zimbabwe or becoming Zimbabwean, where he just kind of talks about the difficulty in that term, right? Like the Zimbabwe people were a construct of colonialism and why it's so hard to build a national identity. And he even talks about like, you know, even if you're white in Zimbabwe, hard to build a national identity because of, a you know, just immigrants from different European countries. So I thought that was really good. And yeah, not much to say about it. Just like a, a thing that I think is um, true of a lot of very diverse countries. Um, kind of, you know, it's a funny thing with diversity. I've brought this up before, but diversity really means the presence of white people. Like, right. Like it's really tough uh, for any African country you know, I would imagine to build that kind of identity if, uh, if their borders were drawn by colonizers. Right. But when you throw in the, you know, actual colonizers still being there, then it really, then it's like a different level of diversity or whatever you want to call it. 
and that makes it even harder. So, um, yeah. And I mean, I think we're seeing things like that happen in, or have seen things like that happen in America. It's similar in a way because, um, America is an immigrant nation and, uh, you know, obviously there's the original sin of colonization, the original sin of slavery. And then besides those two things, there's also just all of the different immigrant peoples from all over the, the globe. And so it can be difficult to create an identity out of that, especially when the country's so young. That's the other thing. If the country is very old, subsuming people into your identity wouldn't be as hard. But Zimbabwe as a concept, the concept that we know now that we now know it as is, you know, as Professor Mambo points out, just not that old. But okay, uh, final thoughts on this book. I have five things. Well, that's a lie. I have six. Here they are. I'm going to try to go through this quick. Keep this thing under 40 minutes. Here we go. First one is there's a ton of references to like internet articles. And that's one of the first times I've ever seen that in, in an academic book. Uh, there's tons of references to books and everything else as well, but just tons of references to internet articles. And it made me feel like a old, like you know, stodgy jerk to look at and go like, that's got a website. It's like half the stuff we do more than half now is all on the internet. And we still, I mean, some people at least still have that, like, Oh, you got it off the internet. I don't know. So, uh, it was good for me to see that and get over myself. Um, the second thing was, I thought the book was even handed. Uh, I highlighted this as my final highlight from the book, um, that I'm going to read Mlambo, Professor Mlambo writes, Zimbabwe's contested pre-colonial and colonial history thus did not provide a favorable and solid foundation for post-colonial nation building or the development of a common national identity. And on the other side in, of that statement and below it, he clarifies and talks about how, you know, the blame pie has many different pieces to dole out. So, you know, he then talks about my third point, how the oppressed become the oppressor. And then my fourth point, how uh, the role of other West Af or excuse me, Western countries and other African countries, how they um, also figured into this. So, um, you know, he really goes around and, and gives context for why Zimbabwe wasn't able to uh, to do it, you know, why they weren't able to get independence in 1980 and just become a booming country. But it's not all, um, you know, gloom with Professor Mlambo, even though there's reason to be. It's the fifth point is he says it can still happen, you know, and he believes it will happen. And these Zimbabwean people are resilient. And this is something I talk to about all the time with my African friends here from different countries, but specifically with my friend from Ghana. You know, it's only been 60 years since decolonization for most countries. Let's just pick 60 as the average, you know, for Zimbabwe, it's 40. But let's like say 50 to 60 years. That's not a long time. It's just not a long time. If you look at 50 to 60 years after the end of slavery, you're not going to be, you know, seeing a, 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 a large population of prosperous, prosperous uh, former slaves. There were definitely some, and they were beaten down and uh, still being persecuted by America. So, you know, black Americans didn't earn their full citizenship until 100 years after the Civil War. 
So, uh, 50 to 60 years of independence, and then in many cases, in almost every single case, not having a very good setup for independence, uh, either, you know, a setup before or after, you got to look at that and go, all right, well, we can't sit here and just take all the blame for that. At the same time, we can't just sit here and point the finger at everybody else and say, well, it's all their fault. So there's somewhere in the middle. Uh, I am not from an African country, so I, you know, I like to recuse myself from any kind of like, oh, well, no, we should definitely say this or definitely say that. Um, But all I'm saying is that there's reason to be optimistic given that it's only been 60 years and things can get better and black people are resilient wherever they land, right? Anywhere in the diaspora or at home. So like Professor Mlambo, I'm generally speaking an optimist. So I believe in it. And then my final thing is just, I thought it was a great job of summing up the situation in general. I, I, I did think that um, the book was short, but I mean, you could write a chapter, each chapter could have been its own book. So fine, but what that's not what this book was. It's kind of like reading uh, Paul Johnson. I read his book, A History of the Jewish People, I think it's called, and also Ireland. And both of them are like, very similar to this book, you know, 250, 300 pages moves through a couple thousand years of history. Uh, so, you know, it's hard to do. I thought this did a great job and I know a lot more about Zimbabwe now. I feel way more informed. I liked the perspective. I thought it was even handed. Uh, I did think there was going to be more criticism of Mugabe, but he didn't really concentrate on him. And in retrospect, I think that was great. You know, you, that's the only person we ever hear about from Zimbabwe is like, I'll just say like a black American. I don't know about other people. Um, And to not really, you know, he's definitely in the, obviously the story of the country. He has to be. But so many other perspectives were covered. I thought that was really good. So yeah, I thought this was a great read. Very informative. Um, Learned a lot about Zimbabwe. Learned a lot about Africa, specifically Southern Africa. And uh, the time period of decolonization. So fantastic read. I do want to check out that lecture that I think has now been published as a book by Professor Mlambo, which is called Becoming Zimbabwe or Becoming Zimbabwean for its parallels to other countries that have to uh, create a national identity. But um, yeah. Uh, Now, that being said, although I did enjoy this book, I am done reading nonfiction for seriously like a year. Uh, Well, it's not true. Just all the nonfiction I'm going to be reading for the next year will be math or machine learning or data science, something like that. Or if I do read non nonfiction about Zimbabwe, it will be for a, for a project I'm doing. So as far as this podcast is concerned, it's going to be fiction only for the next year. So the next time you hear me, we will be reading the anthology Cyberfunk, which features many authors. And yeah, I'll be talking about that. But yeah, for today... This was our last nonfiction book. The summer is over. Um, Maybe it should have been reversed. Like in the summer, you should do fiction. You know, you're just hanging out on the beach or whatever. And then during the year, you buckle down and read nonfiction. But I reversed it. So while you're doing your serious reading during the year, I'll be doing my light reading and you can just listen to me talk about it. All right. The intro and outro music is by The Keep Running check him out in the show notes uh i wrote some articles about uh, zimbabwe and i'm going to probably write a couple more things when i do some more research but you can check that out in the show notes 
you can subscribe on Spotify, uh, iTunes, uh, what is it, Apple Music, iTunes, whatever they got there, Apple Podcasts, Pocket Cast, that's the one I use, SoundCloud, and follow me on Twitter, everything's in the, everything's in the show notes. So, until next time, stay safe, stay black, and keep reading. That's not fair. That's not fair at all. There was time now. There was was all the time I needed. That's not fair. That's not fair.